big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. On the Norwich Research Park, there is the Sainsbury Laboratory, the undisputed global epicentre of plant and microbial science. And deep inside the Sainsbury Laboratory is a coffee room. Nothing extraordinary about it at ground level. It's a coffee room, much like any other. It's only when you look up at the ceiling of the coffee room do you understand the brilliance of the Sainsbury Laboratory scientists. It's not covered in fine frescoes like the Sistine Chapel. It's better than that. It's covered in dents. Why is it covered in dents? And why is each dent signed? Well, you're about to find out. It's just one of the remarkable and fascinating facts bestowed upon us by the executive director of the Sainsbury Laboratory, Professor Nick Tolbert. I have always found the Sainsbury's Laboratory to be one, the most enigmatic part mm. of the Norwich Research Park, which is where we are today. Talking to Professor Nick Tolbert, Executive Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory. Welcome to Eastern Promise. It is a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. Could I start by asking you, please, for a, the potted history of Nick Tolbert? Sure, thank you. Well, it's great to be here too. Thank you for the, the invitation. Um, so, the potted history. So, I'm born and raised in uh, West Sussex in the UK. I did my first degree in Wales at Swansea in microbiology. Then I came to Norwich as a PhD student and I worked at the University of East Anglia and the John Innes Centre on a joint project um, which was looking at um, disease resistance in a, a tomato disease, tomato leaf mold disease, and I did my PhD on that. So I was here between 1986 and 1990, when Colney Lane was an actual lane, um, <laughs> and, uh, and when, uh, when the Norwich Research Park was, uh, was relatively small, the John Innes Institute was obviously here, the Institute of Food Research. Um, but, um, but just when I left, the, uh, the Sainsbury Laboratory was being built, and uh, it was, uh, I, I was here during my PhD for the building of it. And, uh, and my PhD at the... Um, was actually funded by, the, the, the latter half of it was funded by Gatsby, by the Gatsby yes. Charitable Foundation by Sainsbury. So I, I had a long connection with them. After that, I left, I went to America. I was uh, there for um, almost four years working as a postdoctoral fellow. I lived in Indiana in, uh, in the Midwest at Purdue University. And I started there working on a, a really important disease called rice blast, which is where, where I've really made my career. Mm -hmm. So rice blast is a disease that um, threatens um, or destroys enough rice to feed 60 million people each year. So it's a really important problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I started working on rice blast. Then I came back to the UK and started my own research group at the University of Exeter. I was a lecturer there. Um, and then I was here for about five years. I actually went back to the US for another year, worked for, in biotech for a year in, in a company. Um, but then came back to Exeter um, and, uh, and then um, was a professor in Exeter and then I was head of school. And eventually at the University of Exeter, I was deputy vice chancellor. So I looked after all their research portfolio Yeah, and um, was involved in the formation of their science park and, uh, and various research institutes in Exeter. So I was deputy vice chancellor for eight years. And then I fancied a change uh, in 2018. So I came here. So as the as actually the first executive director of the Sainsbury Laboratory. Um, the, the Sainsbury Laboratory underwent a change in governance and, uh, and wanted to appoint a director. And 
and I took on that role and I've right. enjoyed every minute since. Fantastic. I mean, it's, it's very interesting you, you, you talk about um, your experience in the US. And this is what, one of the things I enjoy about doing this is you can sort of follow any, any sort of train of thought down a, a particularly interesting rabbit hole. But I was looking at how in Texas, in the cotton growing areas, there's a virtuous circle between, well, I call it virtuous, virtuous circle between uh, the academic institutions, the agricultural unions and cooperatives uh, in Texas, and the state governance and the county governance. And they're all collaborating together to, to move from the discoveries of the academic all the way around. And it, it's always struck me very much that that is, I won't say well, this, this is what we've got the makings of it, this is what we've got here right now. Just with your experience, the states. Do you want to? I, I think I think you're right. That's what we 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 do have strong elements of that here already. So the Norwich Research Park has um, almost forty companies working on it, um, and, uh, and many of those are indeed taking discoveries from the research institutes and translating them into um, in, into real products that are going to be important for for farmers, growers, for, um, and also for, for consumers, and some go right the way over into, into human healthcare. So, um, so we do have that, but do we have the ecosystem as well developed in, as in the US? No, not by any mm. means. And, and I think that's the opportunity for us, really. That's the opportunity and the challenge for what the Norwich Research Park could become, um, and I think has every chance of, of becoming. What I saw in the, in the United States, and particularly when I worked in a biotech company, I was in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. Um, there you see um, a very, very large number of new startup companies. There are three dominant universities in the area, Chapel Hill, Duke, and, and uh, University of North Carolina, and then Research Triangle Park in the middle. Um, and some very large companies like IBM were there at the time, and then lots and lots of startup companies. And, um, and, and you get a real insight working for one of those companies, just how, uh, how much funding is available to you from lots of different sources. There, were lots of, there was lots of state funding, there were lots of private equity companies, but also um, a lot of government money, um, both federal money and state money, which was enabling startups to flourish and to grow. Part of the challenge in the UK generally has been that we're, we're actually really quite good at startups. We've, we're, we have a very good record across Europe. You know, we have more startup companies here than almost every other country in Europe. What we're less good at is growing companies. Uh, we, we tend to exit very early from companies and they get acquired. They get acquired by US and Chinese and increasingly companies and, and other, other, uh, other nations too. But, but we have been less good at growing companies. And, and to me, if you, if, if you sort of look forward 50 years and you think, what would be the signature success of the Norwich Research Park? To me, it would be, there are actually a few real anchor institutions that companies which were born here and grew here and now employ several hundred people and are actually um, well-known um, names. And in addition, a whole engine room of lots and lots of new startups, mm -hmm. some of which will make it and some won't. But within that, there'll be an ecosystem of talent in the area, yeah. which enables that to grow. That's what I think we can become. Um, I think that too. You know, we're, we're not quite there yet, um, but we have all the ingredients and, and importantly, a lot of uh, people who have arrived here in the, in the last decade or so who really believe that and are making it happen. So 
Um, so that's what I really would like to see happen. Well, I think you, I'm going to get a gong and a cheer that goes up every time you said the magic word, which is opportunity, which is something I'm sort of passionate about sharing with the world and potential. Those are the, the, I think if, if I can sum up the Eastern Promise mission in two words, it's sharing that with not just the outside world beyond our region, but also internally, because I think there's lots of people who, who have connections with colleagues all over the world, but they don't often share those stories within uh, within the region. So they can get, we can actually see what you've just brilliantly uh, elucidated, which is the huge potential and will to make these things happen. And, and you'll go to Cambridge and they'll talk about this building in with a hushed reverence that I find quite nice. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 I think it, you're right, it can be done. And, and I hope that, you know, um, I hope to see it done um, and, 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 and record it being done. Mm. But just for those who don't know, I was looking at the kind of the difference between what the John Innes Centre more broadly does in terms of uh, genetics and microbial science and uh, using that to make new discoveries. And I thought a very, very poor shorthand would be that what the Sainsbury's laboratory does is make sure that those plants and microbes are protected and nourished in the first place so that the John Ennis Centre can do all this extra on top of that. Yeah. Is that is that a good way of putting it or is there a more detailed picture I'm not capturing? I, I, I think that is a good way of putting it. I mean, we are very focused on plant disease. We want to understand why plants succumb to disease. We want to know what makes them immune to the disease. And then we obviously want to be able to ensure that our crops have durable resistance to disease by, a, by an understanding of how the plant immune system operates. And then on the pathogen side, we need to understand, know our enemy. We need to know what enables a microbe to be able to invade and colonize a plant and proliferate within it. Um, and it's by an understanding of, of that biology can we actually devise new strategies to prevent diseases from occurring. Uh, and, and importantly, we know that many farmers rely very, very heavily on fungicides, for example, to, to uh, protect their crops, understandably, because they're very good at what they do. However, we know that also there is an environmental impact to that. Yes. Um, all those chemicals are ultimately derived from oil, so they're, they're all ultimately part of the 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 petrochemical problem that we're in uh, the fact that you know the fossil fuel um problem we're in so we do need to um give provide farmers with solutions which are durable um profitable but uh but don't have an environmental impact and we need farming eventually to become fossil fuel free that's the goal and a goal of a lot of what we do at tsl is associated now with that um, so can we de develop better genetic forms of resistance the type of resistance that's been used by plant breeders for generations, but, but by understanding what the genes actually do, can we then develop durable resistance um, to enable us to, uh, to, to grow wheat, to grow things like potatoes, which are so heavily sprayed with, with, uh, with fungicides, can we grow them without any chemical intervention? Um, in a way that they'll resist yeah. disease. So that's, that's what we try to do. We've, we're very much a discovery institute. We make discoveries about plant immunity. A lot of the plant immune system was discovered here in Norwich. Um, big elements of it, the first immune receptors were discovered at the Sainsbury Laboratory by Jonathan Jones Group. Um, the whole concept of immune receptor networks, which is how we're beginning to understand how certain resistances work, that was discovered here by Sophie and Camoon's group. Um, 
RNA interference, gene silencing, discovered, yes, of course, would, yeah. by David Balcom's group here. Um, so many of the, uh, the big discoveries in plant immunity uh, were made at the Sainsbury Laboratory. And what we're aiming to do is, is carry on that, um, that track record of success in terms of, of new discovery, but also to translate that activity into proper durable solutions. I remember asking Lisa Perkins at, at Astral Park, when they come up with a new innovation or a new technology, does she get a breathless techie running in saying, guess what I've done? And she said, yes. Do you get something similar, like somebody racing to you and going, we've, you know, we've yes. cracked this, that, and the other. This yes. is, that's fantastic, Absolutely. I love it. We have a, there's a real sense of excitement here. Um, we, have, um, we have a tradition at TSL that when people have, uh, have made a discovery, they, uh, they will normally pop a champagne cork and it hits the ceiling of our coffee room and then they inscribe on what the discovery was. Oh, that's amazing. And our, uh, and our coffee room, which we'll show you afterwards, is, is peppered with discoveries made here. Oh, that's um, brilliant. So we celebrate every success and we, uh, importantly, all the different research groups celebrate their success. Um, we celebrated one last week, uh, my colleague Wembo Ma, extraordinarily talented uh, scientist who we recruited from, uh, from the US a couple of years ago now, um, her group made a, a, a really big discovery um, in terms of uh, the operation of plant immunity and we celebrated that. We celebrate all the discoveries yeah. by all of our colleagues. And um, uh, So yeah, there's a, there's a palpable sense of excitement here a lot of the time. People will dr literally tell you, that, look at this and bring you into the microscope and show you something <laughs> on a screen and say, look, look what this is showing me. So yeah, it's a lot of that. That must be a huge buzz for you. I mean, if you get to look it's down a, the microscope it's and a go. Great, it's a great buzz. There's, um, I think the, the, um, the, the culture that really sums up uh, the Sainsbury Laboratory is very much just a can-do strategy, but very much high risk, high reward. We're, we're lucky that we are funded in such a way that, um, that enables us to take risks. And we do, we do, we therefore do take a lot of risks in the re research we do, um, but therefore we can make very long leaps. We can make very large um, conceptual yeah. leaps at times. And that, it is very exciting. Um, so, yeah. I think that, that's wonderful to know because often I think incorrectly, the, uh, there's kind of a North, perception of a Norfolk mindset as steady now, you know, go you steady ball. That was a very bad Norfolk accent. But it's really great to hear that there's that kind of can-do philosophy, that go-get-em philosophy, that the risks are high, the rewards are great. Um, and and that's, that's, that's wonderful to know that, that, that that's happening here. And the future of this institution, I mean, it might be a bit early in the interview to go into the future, but obviously I've, my attention was obviously drawn when I was looking into this, to the HP3, healthy... healthy uh, um, Got to get this right way around. Healthy plants, healthy people, healthy planet. I don't know if they're interchangeable. Yeah. And uh, our vision um, for achieving a safer, healthier, and more sustainable future through the power of plant and microbial science. Could you, perhaps, for those not familiar with the project, because I first saw it in a presentation at the Science Festival from Penny Hundleby, describe the scope of this vision and where it's come from and who's going to be involved in bringing it eventually we hope to life okay so the uh, the well it's it's a, a hugely exciting um, prospect for the for the institute so um, so HP3 is a is a project which is um, between the John Innes Center and the Sainsbury laboratory and we have 
thought about a completely new way really of doing our science to try and break down all the internal barriers to us being able to to collaborate but also to um, to carry out science in a very different way so so currently for example um, we have some wonderful platform technologies here which enable us to do high throughput analysis so we can uh, we we can uh, investigate crops at quite high resolution by bioimaging for instance we can look at them um, under very high powered microscopes and find out what's happening within cells we can also uh, use mass spectrometry to measure all of the different compounds within them we can do that with small molecules we can do that with proteins we can find out what's happening inside we can also obviously sequence genomes at very high resolution too uh, in the future we need to see all of those in the same place at the same time <laughs> uh, we anticipate that the leaps in technology will mean that when you look down a microscope, not only will you see a picture, but you'll be able to measure everything in that picture. You'll be able to measure every constituent, every protein, ultimately all, every molecule. That's the way science is moving. That's the way things are going to, to work. So in order for that to happen, you can't have a series of buildings where everything is siloed in different buildings. You can't have a, no. a biochemistry department. Um, <laughs> you, you can't have a department where you're just carrying out... Um, uh, say chemical synthesis or an, a department where you're you're just going to be analyzing proteins all of that has to come together so hp3 at its heart there's a big capital project which is um brand new facilities for the john innes and, and, and the sainsbury laboratory but they integrate all this technology together at the, at the center of it there's the advanced technology center um which actually houses all of these different platform technologies but all seamlessly so they all yeah. work together all work in at the same uh, in the same way. There's a lot more collaborative space uh, within the building. There's also research hotel space, which enables companies to spin into the uh, institutes as well as spin out. So we can yeah. actually have companies which would um, use our facilities and also occupy those facilities as they grow. So doing um, uh, the formation of companies through pre-seed and seed funding, a lot of that would happen in-house. We'll have space to do that before they move into into incubator space and move into the innovation centers. But at the same time, companies of all different sizes would be able to actually uh, work in a far more integrated way with us, which at the moment is very difficult because of the architecture of the buildings, the yeah. age of the buildings, but also the way in which those technology platforms operate. This actually requires a different way of them operating. They have to have a certain level of um, uh, of, of, of essentially overhead that they've got a certain amount of, of free time that they can use for external collaborations. So it's it's not just the facilities, although they're going to be absolutely state of the art. Um, it's going to be the way in which everything is managed too. Yeah. And we've really thought about this a lot. The two institutes have spent a lot of time thinking about what are the current barriers to doing that. And HP3 has been born out of that, out of that dialogue over yeah. over over many years. Um, it's going to be by far and away the 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 best uh, set of facilities in plant and microbial sciences anywhere in Europe, if not the world. It's going to be really something. Um, and uh, also net carbon zero. It's going to be the first net carbon zero laboratory in the UK. Really? Um, yes. It's going to be, uh, we're recycling heat, for example, from the data center into the glass houses. We're, um, it's um It's got lots of low embedded carbon in the way it's uh, designed. It's going to be a beautiful building, all timber clad, um, and, uh, and with a lot of um, solar energy that's actually going to 
uh, to, to run all of that equipment. So it's going to be a, a net carbon zero. I mean, it's going to be a statement of the of sustainability about how Norwich is going to be leading the world in, in, um, in this area. He's absolutely, you're talking my language now, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, I was going to ask, come on to ask you about the step changing capability. I think you've laid that out quite, quite eloquently. Um, so what, what impact, and again, this is slightly asking you to re repeat what you just said, but I, I, I'm just thinking specific technologies like augmented reality, which is, you know, is not quite, I mean, I've, you, when you wear sort of the goggles, you mm -hmm. can see the rest of the room, but you can still see, I think uh, they got me looking at BT at a jet engine. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of go inside and poke your head around. And I can imagine doing that with, um, you know, microbes, um, uh, you know, virtual reality, artificial intelligence. Are any of these things kind of what, part of what you were, you yes, were saying? Uh, there's a strong artificial intelligence component to what we're doing. So um, we use a lot of machine learning now in, uh, in terms of the, the type of algorithms that we use to, to analyze proteins, to analyze protein structure, but also pro the way that proteins interact with one another the way they form signaling complexes. So a lot of that is, is informed by artificial intelligence and also by structural analysis, which is by cryo-electron microscopy and cryo-electron tomography. So a lot of those technologies will be integrated into this. There's a very, very strong computational aspect now to everything we do. The other thing about the technology center is that everything is going to be uh, you know, networked to everything else. All, mm. all machines talk to each other. Um, and that, and that enables you to do analyses which would be impossible currently. And again, we're anticipating the fact that uh, we're going to be generating vast amounts of data. So there is a big uh, data component to this. There's a new data center which actually will uh, service all the institutes, so the Erlen Quadrum, um, as well as uh, John Innocent and, uh, and the Sainsbury Laboratory. It takes advantage of Erlem's um, world-leading expertise in genomics, in evolution genomics, and the wonderful uh, work that Quadrum does in health. Um, yeah. If you put the institutes together, you get a real nexus of sort of food, health. You, know, you go all the way from, um, you, you go the, the, right the way from sort of farm to fork, I guess is what people say, but it goes right the way through to, to gut health and yeah. health and well-being. There's, there's, there isn't anywhere quite like that anywhere really in the world that does all of those things in one place. I mean, uh, you, you, you brilliantly asked answering questions before I've asked them, which is brilliant. Um, the picture facing humanity that's laid out in the HP3 vision is as simple as it is stark. You were talking about the loss of arable land at 23 hectares a minute, mm. which which would really make me kind of, oh, blimey. Um, more humans, are, to put it bluntly, more humans are coming into the world than leaving it. Um, and uh, the way in life we, we have, particularly in the West, however you want to couch the West, but particularly in the, in the Western world, um, it tends to take for granted where, you know, where things are coming from, where they're going to, uh, et cetera. Um, and it's coming at a huge cost to the natural realm that we, there seems to be a kind of a reluctance to understand, let alone to pay it. Um, exhausted by the pandemic, um, we're failing to pay attention to more serious problems like antimicrobial resistance. And then we've got the climate crisis on top of that, as if all that wasn't enough. Um, that's more than obviously we can expect with the Sainsbury 
laboratory to deal with on its own. And you've, you've kind of laid out already how there's that nexus growing here. So how can you not just on this park alone, but across the region and, and indeed globally, what does stepping up to the challenge look like from your from the hot seat at, at the uh, well I, well I think we have to play to our strengths you know there are there are as you say that if you put all the problems together it looks insurmountable it looks huge mm. but but actually just need to break it down into its component parts so the way I look at this is that the uh, the intellectual space that we occupy is is understanding how plants succumb to disease so let's try and deal with that because if we can deal with that at the moment um, irrespective of all of the the spraying of fungicides and uh, pesticides around the world, we still lose between 30 and 40% of our crops every year across the world. So um, if we could actually deal with that, that gets us quite a long way to the uplift in um, production that we're going to need. We know that um, in the future, we're going to have to redesign many of our crops to have much lower inputs and to be able to withstand extreme weather events, uh, drought, flooding, um, they're going to have to operate with a lot less fertilizer. They're going to have to be very high yielding um, and they're going to have to be very resilient. That's really tough biology yeah. to crack. And, uh, and the John Innes Center, our colleagues there, will be absolutely the forefront of cracking those problems. They've already got great track record in that, the, the biofortification work that they've, yeah. they've led, um, the amazing work they've done in designing future wheat, for example, yes. you know, the, yes. which is really breathtaking really there's there's some wonderful work right across the John Innes in trying to address some of those really knotty problems our bit of that is to make sure that once that we've developed these fantastic crops they don't die from disease yes so the same thing <laughs> is going to solve that part of the puzzle and we're going to try and provide solutions that stop us um, having to to spray chemicals on fields um, so that that will be our part of it um, but the Norwich Research Park as a whole actually has a, a really important part to play in antimicrobial resistance, understanding the potential of the microbiome, which is, um, that's really fundamental to the work being done at Quadrum and Earlham. So trying to understand how the microbial community um, enables crops to be more resilient. So we're only really now learning um, in the last couple of decades really about the way that uh, soil ecosystems work to promote plant growth. Um, there's a lot of work in that area at the um, at the at the at Earlham and Quadrum, um, Earlham's involved in the Tree of Life project, looking at biodiversity and and how that will ultimately enrich um, and enable us to deal with things like antimicrobial resistance. So I think the park as a whole has got a big part to play in it. We've also got UEA has got world leading expertise in in, in climate. Clearly, yes, um, one of the very best places in the world for climate science, and. Um, and they're also incredibly strong in, uh, in international development, social sciences, so to be able to translate a lot of these activities. So I think collectively, there's, we have a lot to offer. Mm. Um, and, and in every one of those areas, you can point to people that you could go anywhere in the world and they'll have heard of someone from Norwich working in them. Yeah, yeah. I think we, that, that so often in the narrative that comes across, at, 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 not, not from the park, I wish there was more of a, a, you know, enthusiasm and excitement conveyed about what's going on here because it, it's absolutely gripping. I mean, it I've is. read only 10% of the genetic potential of wheat has been explored. Yes, uh, indeed. Really? Yeah. And, uh, and, and we now have the tools to exploit it within, uh, within the, the, the wheat scientists at, at, uh, at the John Innes. You know, they, they're now 
really able to identify where that diversity is and, and then deploy it appropriately. Yeah. And that's been really hard. Wheat's a difficult crop. You know, it's a hexaploid. It's got six copies of each chromosome, three different genomes in it. It's, it's, it's um, uh, fiendishly difficult to yeah. work with, but they have tamed it here um, <laughs> you know, un under you know, the leadership of, of Graham Moore and, uh, and, uh, and Christabel Wowie and Diane Saunders and, and, and many others, um, um, Simon Griffiths, lots of people here at the, yeah. at the Institute who've uh, really been at the forefront of, um, of working on, uh, on wheat genetics, and that's followed tradition of Mike Bevan and others here. I mean, it's the, it, there's been a strong tradition of, of that. Um, you know, the, the, the reason the Sainsbury Laboratory is in Norwich was because it came here because the Johnnies was already here. You know, it came, that's interesting, it, yeah. it came here because um, it was the, some very far-sighted individuals in the, in the Gatsby Charitable Foundation in the late 1980s understood that plant immunity might be a, an area that was tractable if it was invested in to, to understand. And they said, well, where do we put it? Uh, do we put it in Cambridge? Do we put it in Oxford? Do we put it in, I don't know, in, in Edinburgh? Uh, and they looked around the country and they realised, no, the place you have to put it is Norwich because this had already, even then in the late mm. the 80s, it had more expertise in plant molecular biology than anywhere in the world already then. And, they, and that's why it's here. That's a no-brainer really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's fascinating because all I knew about wheat, other than, you know, I'll never look at my Weetabix in the same way again after this, but... Um, all I knew about wheat was one mention on one episode of the West Wing when they talk about dwarf wheat. Um, and now we've got, is it semi-dwarf wheat? Did I? Yeah. Or, so that's I, the, yeah, the foundation of the Green Revolution is the semi-dwarf varieties of uh, wheat and rice that enabled us to, uh, to dramatically increase yield. Mm. And now uh, it's sort of fundamental to the way we grow, we, we grow things. If you look at the wheat from the the, you know, from the uh, the 19th century, it's uh, it's very very tall compared to the, to any of the wheat growing now. But couldn't carry, it was putting all that energy into growth and none of it into grain. Yeah. Now it puts all the energy into grain, um, and uh, and again in terms of plant architecture, what we've got to do in the next few decades is revisit that because we need even bigger ears of wheat and we need yeah. even larger leaves to carry uh, to uh, to capture sunlight, and we need them to be deeper rooting. In order that they can uh, they can uh, pull in more nutrients from from lower nutrient soils mm. with less nitrogen input, so there's that's what we need to do next. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's the deciding factor in in what kind of global problems get to the sort of the top of the inbox for the Sainsbury's Laboratory? I mean, because I know you've 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 been looking at. Uh, uh, the sub-Saharan sub Africa's food requirements. They're expected to triple. Um, in, in a really, really scarily short space of time, um, work's been done with Kenya uh, and Ugandan institutes. Yeah. So what, 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 what is the sort of de decision-making process that gets, gets um, to the top of the inbox, as it were? Right. Well, well we are still predominantly cur curiosity-driven. So it, uh, it still is the fact that our group leaders have ideas and we let them pursue them. Um, and... Um, but their ideas increasingly, and in fact, everyone at the Sainsbury Laboratory uh, is involved in, in, uh, in both discovery science and translation. And in fact, it's so much so that they wouldn't recognize the division. I don't think anyone here would, uh, would really recognize that division. It's mm. just what we do. So we, we, we study a, a disease problem. We want to attack it fundamentally, understand how it works. 
but we also want to translate, we, we want to, to use that knowledge to develop better crops. And, yeah. and, we, and that is now a, a seamless, it's deep in the DNA of the institution, that's what we do. There's a phrase um, one of my colleagues, Sophie and Camus, uses, which he calls it gained in translation. Right. Um, so there's a lot of play on words compared to lost in yeah. translation. So, so gained in translation, meaning you actually, you're, you have this wonderful feedback loop. You learn more about your science when you try to apply it. You actually, you make bigger discoveries by attempting to yes. uh, discover it. The, the, uh, the great scientist Richard Feynman once said that you don't understand a scientific problem until you've engineered it. Right. There's a certain element of truth in that. You, you, unless you've tried to use the discovery to, to change the way a crop's grown, you yeah. don't really understand the biology unless you can do that. Yeah. Um, so, so to us, it's very much a productive sort of feedback loop. It's not, there isn't a, a, a department that applies and a and part that does discovery. Everyone does everything here. Do you, do, you, do you get much into the lab yourself? I, I have an active research group. We all do. So, um, oh, wow. Um, I, you know, my, I'm a group leader here. My group make uh, discoveries. We do, we do a lot of, you know, I, I run a big program on, on rice blast and, uh, and wheat blast. Um, and um, I don't think you could lead the Sainsbury Laboratory unless you, uh, you actually were an active researcher. I yeah. don't think it could be done, really. Um, it's it, we're, too, we're we're such a research focused in, institution that um, that we have to do. But that is still what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's still what motivates me. Um, I mean, is 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 you mentioned earlier about sort of um, fertilizers and fossil fuel based um, fertilizers and other things. Is it is it part of your mission to make uh, that? discussion of things like fossil fuel based um, fertilizers, etc., as much a, a thing of the past, like lead, lead lined water pipes kind of thing. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like the, the, uh, the analogy we sometimes make in the lab is that the um, uh, looking at uh, Victorian medicine mm. saying, you know, we're, we're not putting leeches on people anymore. And, um, and, uh, and, and we're, we're actually, um, We've moved well beyond that. You know, the people will look at that in the same way and said, you, you won't believe that 100 years ago they used to spray chemicals on fields. People will say, oh, I can't, can't believe we ever did that. We, I'd love the, that to be a legacy of the Sainsbury Lab, that we uh, were part of that change in humanity. The way that we grew food was, was uh, in, a, in a way that didn't require um, that, uh, those interventions. And that's not to disrespect the science that's gone into their development. Which has been some great science, you know. That's and and in many ways, it was a natural thing to do. Medicine mm. works very much on on chemicals, on small molecules. You know, we we're used to taking medicines. Uh, it was a natural thing for agriculture to do. Um, it just has consequences which were unforeseen. Really, the fact that um, that we didn't realise at the time that we we couldn't have uh, agricultural systems being so heavily dependent on fossil fuels. And also, we didn't anticipate some of the environmental impacts that mm. we've seen. Um, and, and those impacts have been really quite profound in, with certain chemical classes you know, that, uh, that, have, um, that have been used in, um, historically, particularly in terms of, uh, of pesticides. You know, there have been unforeseen consequences. So uh, anything we can do to get away from that would, would be great. That's what, we're, mm. that's what we're, we're trying to do. I think you can't, you can't get, you wouldn't do to get too hung up in sort of self-castigation uh, about how we got there, um, because yeah. you know the scientists at the time did absolutely the best they could with what they had, but we now know so much more as as a society, and and you you guys are, uh, are really enabling uh, the progress 
uh, beyond that. Um, I, I did also take a look at uh, the Langdale review into the UK plant site strategy. And, um, you know, the, in her foreword, Jane Langdale talks, and I know who's very involved in this, this very, um, is it to the research park or the John Innes Centre? I can't recall which one she's. Yes, she's been, uh, she's been part of their science advisory board, yeah. Um, but she talks about increased collaboration, which is, is exactly uh, where you're heading with, with HP3, which is great. But what has uh, the Langdale Review meant to you as a, as a scientist, uh, the St. Louis Laboratories Institution and, and, the, and the wider research park and uh, plant science more, more broadly? Uh, what's it meant? Uh, where, do you, is, is it, where do you feel it's taking the field? Yeah. Well, I think it was a very prescient, you know, very important review because and, and um, one of the most important things, it was community driven. So it was driven really by the plant science community. So. So I think you know they they looked at, uh, at this uh, whole area and, and thought what do we need to do how could we how could we organise and corral the talents of cross plant sciences in the UK um, so that we achieve more so that you know the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and that's really what Jane looked at and um, and I think there's some really important recommendations in there about the fact that we do need there to be some national hubs. Um, so national centres of excellence, and uh, we need there to be better integration across the plant science community. It's quite fragmented. At the moment, we have lots of great expertise, but it's dotted around in, uh, in rather small groups. So we need to think about ways in which we can integrate those. Um, we also need to think about the way we train the next generation of plant scientists. Um, I'm involved, as is Jane Langdale, who, in, uh, in, a, in training... Um, graduate students and indeed undergraduates in plant sciences. We do, uh, we have a, a Gatsby plant science network, which we're both involved with. So we're very conscious of how you, we need to invest in the next generation of scientists and make sure that m many really talented people don't opt just to go into medicine, although obviously we need them to go there too. But we really need some of those to go to plant sciences and, uh, and realize that they can really make a profound difference to the world by studying plant sciences. Mm. So there's a, that's an important aspect of it. Uh, and otherwise, it really is about making sure that we have sufficient scale uh, in terms of investment and, um, and sufficient scale in terms of capability like the HP3 project, that we actually have projects at that scale. And it won't just be here, it will be across the whole country. You know, there's, they make recommendations around other centres which are really important in the UK, such as uh, Rothamsted or the James Hutton Institute in, um, in Dundee. You know, there are a number of key centres around the UK that are really, really important and, um, and making sure that, that all of those are well funded and integrated is, is important. Yeah. And it, it must be really, I don't want to say the word handy, but it cannot be a bad thing that the current science and technology minister is one George Freeman MP, who is himself a Norfolk MP, who yeah. I know because it was a, I used to work for, for his neighbour, Richard Bacon. It was a course of constant frustration to me that, that it was really George who, who got the research pack. I was like, I want to go and get involved. I want to go and find out more. Yes. Um, that, that, that can't be a bad thing, can it? No, I, I think there are the two really important things there is that I think uh, it, it's, it's obviously great that he's a, a Norfolk MP and he, he understands um, what goes on here at the Norwich Research Park and, and has been a really vocal supporter of it for, for many years. Also, the other thing that's key about George is he absolutely understands life sciences because he's got his background in that area. Mm. So he understands um, 
the relationship between discovery science and and um, and translation, and he does understand the importance of uh, generating a, an environment that will lead to to spin out activity and will lead to uh, to new company creation. So, so that's I think important, and that's not always been the case with ministers of, of whichever parties in power. Yeah, I'm not. You know, yeah. there have been there. It, it sometimes has been difficult for some politicians to really grasp the really imp importance of um, of agricultural biotechnology. Or even an understanding of how the um, how innovation actually works. Um, so, it, yeah, I think it's important that uh, that people like George are in those positions, really. I mean, especially when the the current administration, and no doubt administrations to follow, want to see the UK really lead on being a science and technology superpower, whatever you think of that term. But I think your this this park. And the east of England more broadly is showing uh, very much a, le a lead, playing a leading role. I think, just as a as, as, a, as a lay person, as, a, as an observer. Let me ask you to reflect on this. One of the things I try and do is obviously get across the whole of the region, which can be difficult. And uh, I think um, sometimes there there can be the appearance of silos, whereas breaking them down is really and, and as you're trying to, you're gonna, I'm sure you're going to show when HP three goes ahead an act of will to get those silos broken down and to get people talking and to get exciting conversations happening. Do you find that in science across the region, across the, the field, you don't get issued with an embossed invitation to, to, be, to be part of things. You actually have to go out and grab it and make it happen. You do, and, and I, I think you, you, yeah, you have to get engaged, and you, and you have to pro be proactive about uh, about talking to to people. I mean, I think the the whole area of innovation is is one that, um, I mean, to me, it's so important that you know you'd hope that on the political side there's a sort of cross party um, consensus on the importance of innovation, yeah. um, and uh, because ultimately, you know, if if the UK is going to to prosper in the future, a lot of it will be through the knowledge economy and. And 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 the, and and, it's, and science will be fundamental to that. You know, we've got to have really strong science. We're, we're lucky; we already do have very strong science in the UK. Um, it could be stronger still, um, and uh, it's, especially if if there was clearly if there was more investment, you, I'd bound, you know you'd bound to expect me to say that. But at the same time, it's not just the scale; it's the type of investment and the way that things are invested in, and um, and a lot of it is, as you say, about integration. It's trying to make sure that we. We do that in a in an integrated way that we bring together different different types of expertise. One of the great things about the HP3 project is that the building is designed in such a way that it encourages what we call creative collisions. Yes. So you can't go from one part of the building um, without meeting someone else. Yes. So you it, it means that those sort of chance coffee table encounters and discussions and ideas generation happen because that's the other thing that you notice that you can. It's very easy to get siloed in one place. You go to work, you go to your office, you go to your lab, you do what you do and you go home and you can mm. not meet anyone. From, uh, and, and that's what we want to try and avoid. We want to make sure that people always do meet up. Don't yeah, I think that the wonderful Ros Bird over at uh, the Centre calls it engineered serendipity. Absolutely. Um, yes, which is, which is, which is right. a fantastic. I may end up cutting this bit, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway, without, going, without mentioning the dread B word. Um, Horizon, is that programme... Obviously, I know George is at the forefront of either getting us back in to Horizon as the UK or finding a, an alternative. 
But is that anything that affects you here, or is, is Horizon something that happens in to other sectors? Or no, we're everyone in uh, everyone in the Sainsbury Laboratory has a, a, a large European Research Council grant. We all have ERC grants. Um, that innovation from Horizon Europe was really important. It was the first um, really uh, curiosity-driven research um, program launched by the European Union. Um, it's been in operation for just uh, well, more than a decade now, and it's become um, synonymous, really, with 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 high-performing institutions. You know, it's uh, uh, and uh, and also the, the the sort of career development of staff. You know, that they very often go go for a. Uh, an ERC starter grant, then a consolidator grant, then an advanced grant. Each of these, each of those, is five years and very well funded, and enables them to do whatever they like. Um, we've benefited enormously from ERC funding, as have uh, the Johnists and all the institutes at uh, at uh, Earlham and Quadrant Two, and UEA. So we've we've benefited enormously by that. You know, about twenty percent, just over twenty percent of our income is from the European Union. So. So it's important. We've benefited from the underwrite. So the government's underwritten grants and newly awarded ones have still been underwritten by the UK government. It's not quite the same as the ERC. I mean, part of it is um, is wanting to be able to collaborate with the European scientists, but also to compete at the highest level. Um, it, it's, um, I think, I hate using football analogies, but it is a bit like the Champions League. That when you're competing at the European level, it's you know that there is an argument. You know the argument for the for Plan B has said that, well, we we don't necessarily need to do that. We can put the, the equivalent amount of money and just make it for the UK. Well, it would be a bit like saying, well, you can compete in the Champions League, but you're not actually going to compete with anyone from Europe. You're just going to compete with your local team, and at the end of it, we'll give you a cash prize, which will be the same as the Champions League winners get. It wouldn't be quite the same. No. The level of the level, the quality, and the activity wouldn't be the same. And it's exactly the same with science. You know, the, the scientists here, they, they love collaborating and they want to form big networks, but they also want to compete at the very highest level. And that's what we can do in the ERC. And there's no competition like that. So it does matter a lot. Yeah. I, think, I think from what you're describing, those, those who are sort of positing the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Union Jack alternative, I think they want, from the sounds of it, they want it to be that way, but it isn't going to be that way. Scientists tend not to talk about the competition aspect of it, but if you want to drive up quality, if you want the science here to be the very best, then why not pitch it against the very best from a whole mm. continent, and then you'll find you're funding the best projects. And it, and it, and and it so, is, from what you're saying, it, it does come across a bit like a, Papillon is the wrong word, but the wrong phrase, but it is like, oh, right, so you've got, you know, yeah. so you're, you've got one of those, I mean, so I, you must I, be good. I sit, I, mean, I sit on one of the panels at the EU that decides these grants, um, and, uh, and I can be in a room and I've got experts from every country in, the, in, in Europe. I've got the world's leading experts around the table. They're deciding on what gets funded. If a UK grant gets funded through that, you can guarantee it's really, really good. It's, it's absolutely world-leading science. It's very hard to reproduce that for any individual nation, not just us, any nation no, 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 to no, do indeed, that. It's really indeed. difficult to do. Um, and because it's got that badge of quality, everyone will want to be on those panels. And it's not just the Europeans, actually. You know, there's, there's people from North America, from the Far East, are on those panels too. They'll come because they know they're reviewing the science from the whole continent. And they know that it's going to be very good. So it's actually really about the quality of reviewing, the quality of applications, the competition. That, that's what's so important about Horizon yeah. Europe. It's, uh, it's not just... Everyone emphasizes on all the news reports I've seen. Everyone colla emphasizes collaboration. That's that's important too, but it's not just that. It's actually exactly the same as in every other field of 
activity. It's, it's competition and ensuring what's funded is the very, very best. Yeah. That's what a lot of it's about. Before I sort of start wrapping up, but you ask you to reflect on the difference, if, if there is a difference, or whether it's very kind of a global picture between the UK and, and, and European approach to science and the US approach. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a value judgment. I'm just trying to see and understand what differences, if any, there are. I think um, if you just look at the figures, you know, the US has a is a phenomenally in, in you know innovative um, society. It benefits because, of course, it draws in talent from anywhere in the world. So it draws in the very, very best talent from wherever. Um, it enables them uh, a lot of freedom in what they're able to do, and uh, and it funds innovation, and it also funds essentially what you'd call here patient capital. It it, it funds for a long time. So you can, uh, you can launch a, a company uh, on the basis of, of very, very little, and you can get uh, funded for a long time until it turns into profit. And you can see lots of examples of that. You, know, you look at the huge companies that have formed and how long it took them to get to profit mm. um, from, from Google and, and, and Twitter, which is still not in profit, and so, and so on. <laughs> you know. um, but companies can um, really in a, innovate and grow and, and Europe as a continent has had problems in doing that. In, in, if you look at the, the formation of really large companies over the last few decades, we've been less good at that across mm. Europe. Um, I think the UK has a, a huge amount of, um, of entrepreneurial spirit and, and ambition in this area and, uh, and, and a lot of ingenuity. So I, I do think we're really good at this mm. and I think we are somewhat better than some of our European neighbours. Some of them, you know, they're, they're incredibly innovative companies in Germany, France, and so on as well, of course. But, but we are good at it, and uh, and, and we we definitely have a lot of the ingredients for having an innovative mm -hmm. society. I think the areas that we have done less well have been some of these are financial. Some of this is just the ability of um, or the willingness of of financial institutions to fund for the longer term and to enable companies to take bigger risks and to grow for longer. We've tended to exit earlier. We've investors have required a return at a much earlier stage mm. than they have in the US and they have in, in even in other European countries. So that's an area that we still need to deal with. And, uh, and of course, you know, there's, there's a huge disparity in where these uh, companies are organized across, across different parts of the UK, which is clearly a, mm -hmm. um, a, big, a big issue as, as well. Um, so I think that we we have strong elements of uh, of really good parts of of the sort of European tradition of, uh, of of science and innovation, and also very strong elements of of the U.S. approach to it. So, you know, we're we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, we tend to beat ourselves up a lot about what we what that we we don't do it very well. We actually do some parts of it really well. I think you know we do a lot of early stage translation really well. I think. The area that we need to work on is how do you convert that into wealth creation and, and the growth of, uh, of the economy. Yeah. Um, and some of that is just simply by not exiting too early and taking bigger risks and seeing companies grow over a longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the Langdale Review talks about the reluctance of the, the private sector uh, to, to, to get involved in, 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 in more things. Um, genetic precision plant breeding bill is it a bill still or is it now yes. an act it's oh. it's an act it's passed. Ah, excellent yeah. there's been i've seen a lot of linkedin on linkedin about that we've got obviously, um 
George being uh, the science minister, but we've also had, regionally speaking, Daniel Zeitner, MP for Cambridge and uh, the Shadow Farming Minister, uh, was, was very, very closely involved in that bill responding for the, as, for the opposition. What has that meant to the work that goes on here? Um, I think that we're, we're very encouraged by the fact that uh, the regulatory framework will now be uh, enable uh, more research in, uh, in, in gene editing to, um, to be developed you know, for the market. So it will be developed and, and we can undergo trials in an easier way. Um, our role is really to, to demonstrate the, uh, the potential of, uh, of new technologies and the potential for what they could do for, uh, for the development of new crops. And I think that the bill does really help us do that. Um, I think we just need to have a, a, a very, I, th I think actually the public understand this very already very clearly really, that we need to have an open mind to new technologies and the way they could be deployed. And of course, we need to have um, a regulatory framework in which the public has confidence and, uh, and that publicly funded institutions they know are involved in the research to give them confidence that this is actually being done um, in a rigorous scientific manner. Um, and, uh, and under those circumstances, you know, I, I think, uh, I think it has a really important part to play in the, in the development of, of new crops. Um, it's not a silver bullet. There's going to be lots of other things we need to do. We need to take the lessons from all sorts of things. So um, the, the, the whole regen agriculture movement um, have mm. great ideas about how to look after soil quality and, uh, and how to ensure that the microbiome associated with crops is, is looked after. There's a lot that we can learn from the science of agroecology. Um, but at the same time, if we can actually draw upon the genetic potential of crops and we can then enable that knowledge to be um, deployed more quickly than, use, than conventional plant breeding by actually moving the genes um, by genetic modification or by editing them by genetic, um, by genome editing, then that has greater potential for us to enable us to, to deal with some of the other problems that we face. You know, so we've, we face, as we've talked about previously, this great existential crisis really <laughs> in terms of climate change, which we have to deal with. Um, that means we need the full range of tools um, to in, enable us to do that. And what we need from government is the regulatory framework to in, enable the, the, the public to have confidence in what we're doing, to know that it's everything that it's being uh, thoroughly tested. Uh, we expect the same in medicines. We expect the same in food quality. We, we you know, we we do expect the same in in all of these areas. Uh, I think we're going to expect it in artificial intelligence. You know, we need the yeah. same. We need we need a strong uh, regulatory framework in all of those areas that in which the public has confidence. But we also want don't want to stifle innovation. We want to make sure that we can innovate, because the only way out of these problems is to innovate. You know, we found that. Ultimately, how do we get out, how do we get out of the pandemic? It was innovation. We we innovated. We made new vaccines. We did more genomic surveillance work. We innovated our way out of the problem. That's how we're that's how we're going to to overcome climate change. We'll have to innovate our way out of this problem that we're in. We will, yeah. So um, so it's a balance. You know, we we need regulation that people have confidence in. We also need to have a a, a culture that enables innovation to proceed. Fantastic. Professor Nick Talbot, that was uh, so exciting, the things that are happening here. The uh, developments that are to come, uh, watching with huge amount of interest. Um, 
you are playing and you're at the forefront of playing so many critical roles. <laughs> I like playing in, in goal and every every position to go back to football metaphors of the field all at once. And so many so many problems, but uh, it's fantastic that this institute, this park, this region is at the forefront of addressing so many of those. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much Price. for coming on Easter Promise. Thank you. Thanks Thank you very much. much. It was a huge pleasure to meet and chat with Professor Talbot and to visit the Sainsbury Laboratory. It is a vital part of what makes the East of England such a rich and vibrant place to conduct science and puts our region at the heart of discovery. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.